Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose, and what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, join me for a conversation with lawyer, CNN analyst, and former FBI special agent, Asha Rangappa. Stay tuned. Gratefully, a large part of my professional career has been devoted to education. And one of my particular interests is the concept of entrustment, in that how do you develop trust in yourself and acquire the skills to be entrusted with professional responsibility? As an educator, I get particularly excited when someone demonstrates great self-confidence with the intellectual curiosity, passion for craft, and thoughtfulness to translate their hard work into terrific outcomes. Now for Asha Rangappa, This journey of garnering trust has come from a purposeful drive to excel and the fuel of a self-charted pathway. She grew up in Virginia, went to Princeton, and after going to law school at Yale, served as a special agent in the New York division of the FBI, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. She now teaches at Yale and serves as a legal and national security analyst for CNN. Asha is a fairly prolific writer and a sought-after thought leader, and I've been following her on Twitter for a while, especially during the past few years of following so many things relevant to national security. I was fortunate enough to chat with her, and I asked her about the simply dizzying pace and enormous amount of information that we encounter and how she particularly navigates through it. I saw a clip of you yesterday on CNN talking about, you know, the, the tragic shooting in Colorado, and then I... I actually thought to make a list of the variety of different events that have happened this last month, you know, the Atlanta shooting, the Capitol riot, and we were just quickly, you know, talking about this, you know, as a as a citizen, as an academic, do you ever just find the information and the ability to have to analyze this delivery um, dizzying to the point where people stop analyzing and scrutinizing and do their due diligence you know, to the point where it becomes almost disposable information. How do you reflect on that a little bit? Yeah. um, You know, I think one of the biggest problems we have right now is just information oversaturation. Yeah. It becomes incredibly uh, difficult to differentiate and prioritize information because especially it's like presented in these flat forms, right? Like it's like your email, like everything is there all at once. Um, rolling screens like Twitter or, or Facebook. And so um, it can be overwhelming. Um, in terms of me approaching it, in some ways, the fact that I have to comment is helpful because it gives me something, the, the way to focus right, and what, what to prioritize. And um, I just had a thought about this and it just, oh, I was going to make the comparison to, you know, you're a physician and I kind of see myself as a a generalist, right? Like I am there to kind of understand and, you know, using my legal 
and national security background to really get the salient points of these big stories and then to translate them for the audience. Right. Right. Um, because I think especially when you're dealing with specialized information, like all of a sudden, you know, there's an indictment here and there's an investigation going on here. I think the layperson doesn't know, like, what does this mean? What's the so what? Yeah. You know, and so for me, I kind of think of myself as using my specialized background and knowledge as a filter for making it more understandable and the big takeaways for for the public. Yeah. Well, and and with that, when you're actually taking it and translating it to, to the public, even for you or, or for others out there, if they weren't getting that kind of translation because of the pace of these kinds of things, does it sometimes make the makes the story itself or the ideas that much more disposable? Uh, I think it can. I think people check out in some ways. Look, we used to have a media ecosystem that was very narrow, right? I mean, there were three major networks. You had a news broadcast in the evening. Everyone came home. They tuned in. You got the day's news. Um, it was generally, if you went to the three networks, um, more or less kind of the same objective fact reporting filter yeah. of, of these evening newscasts. And so people, you kind of got the what I need, you know, what, what do I need to know about what happened in the world today? I have the basic facts. Everyone else also has the basic facts of the same stories. Right. Now, then you have uh, in the late 90s cable news and then in, you know, the late 2000s, uh, Internet and social media. And right. all of a sudden, you know, you have so many different things drawing your attention. They are coming through very different filters depending on what your kind of bubble is and how you've curated some of these, uh, you know, personalized feeds and things like that. So you're not really even sharing, you know, what, what you are even focusing on may be very different than what somebody else is focusing on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the sheer volume of it can make people tune out. I definitely saw that in during the Mueller investigation, Mm -hmm. It was it it was like a Leo Tolstoy novel, you know, War and Peace. Like it's just like so many different characters. I mean, lots of Russians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, how do you keep track of it? And, very, and people who I knew were who are very intelligent and actually quite engaged mm -hmm. just were like, I can't even I can't even stay on top of this. So um, I think it's a challenge. Well, and does it make it harder to develop a relationship, not only with the material, but even just develop a relationship with the, the overall cultural zeitgeist of, of what, you know, it means to be an American in 2021 compared to those days when you could develop a relationship because the, the, either the pace or the amount, uh, the sheer volume of the content was so different. Yeah. In that, in that because people tune out, right, it's hard to necessarily, I, I find it hard, or I wonder if it's hard, the hypothesis is, is it harder to develop a relationship with the content, with the material, with that idea of citizenship? Because, you know, that means something different every 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a big question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I have to, I have to do a deep dive into the things that I talk about. So, you know, and for me, because it's mostly legal and national security related, um, 
as opposed to say political analysis or cultural analysis. For me, it's, it's just, it is what it is. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, here's, here's why, you know, the FBI can't do X or here's why they can't prosecute this person for Y. I mean, it, it is what it is. And so I don't find it difficult to have a connection with the material. Yeah. Um, personally. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. How, how did, if you step back for a second, how did your journey as a South Asian American woman lead you then to get to this space, right? To get to um, the concept of being a, a lawyer and then into counterintelligence and um, going on into academics and, and being a uh, analyst in this way. How, how did you find yourself here? I think, uh, you know, I have generally, I, I think outside the box, I go off the beaten path. I tend to follow what interests me rather than, for example, you know, what pays the most. Um, and so a lot of those choices have shaped uh, or a lot, a lot of those motivations have, cha- have shaped my choices. Um, I have to be honest, like I have never, I haven't all thought of these choices as being really shaped by being South Asian at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think that allowed me to do things that were very different, right? Like if I had stayed with um, a very narrow conception of South Asian identity or expectations, um, I would not have gone to law school. I mean, it, I know it's now cool in the Indian community to be a lawyer. It was not necessarily in the late nineties. That was still like cutting edge and, you know, yeah. kind of crazy. For, You're so out there, right? He was so out there. Um, and then, you know, the FBI like is, was just off, uh, off the rails. I mean, I think only Priyanka Chopra has now made that um, an acceptable career path. <laughs> right. I, I, right. I think. You, you have a, you have a popular group of two there, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I really didn't um, shape based on shape my choices based on, you know, like a narrow South Asian identity. Um, And, you know, especially I I think I was the first South Asian female FBI agent in the bureau. Yeah. Um, You know, if I had been relying on that I, you know, I would have just assumed that that was not possible or something like that. So sure. I had to kind of free myself from a lot of those um, uh, identifications in order to really and, see and, the world a little bit bro- more broadly. Did you find that to be, um, you know, in some ways, both uh, easy and challenging? I mean, were, were there some risks involved in that um, for yourself? Were, were there, was that part of the calculus or was that just sort of who you are innately um, in sort I of think thinking that way? I think it's who I am innately. I, you know, when I speak with um, South Asian groups and especially younger students, they're like, well, what did your parents say? And right. how did you navigate that? And I was, I was like, I kind of didn't care what my parents think. Yeah. Like, um, you know, and maybe I'm very fortunate that I kind of, felt pretty confident that they had to love me no matter what I did and that they would, you know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. um, and they also weren't going to like, let me starve on the street if, sure. you know, if, if, if I made a out. bad choice. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I'm innately more rebellious. I mean, I was a cheerleader in high school, you know, like I did a lot of things that my parents were like freaked out and were sure. like, <laughs> How like what is this alien daughter? Like, how do we get her? Um, but I think that, you know, I think that's just kind of who I am. 
Well, and that when that translated into the space of being in the FBI and, and perhaps being the only South Asian woman in that space, did the identity then, you know, really get magnified in that way, particularly um, in the time that you were there? I, I imagine post 9-11 um, as well, if any of that was affecting that. Yeah, I mean, the, certainly the FBI is, uh, I think still, it was then and I think still uh, primarily white, primarily male. Um, I mean, I think it's uh, 83% white and 80% male. So, yeah. you know, it's it's a very patriarchal um, organization. But and I would say if I had to think of one, the aspect that was more I was more conscious of, I would say it was being a woman more than being mm -hmm. South Asian, just because the the, you know, it's, it's all it's law enforcement. Sure. You know, it's a macho culture. Yeah. And so I think that piece of it, you feel more. The the South Asian part, I mean, I was on the counterintelligence side. And I think that, you know, aspects of diversity are more valued on that side simply because they're more mm -hmm. salient. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're monitoring for your targets are foreign. So having, you know, language abilities, um, being able to um blend into places where people don't know necessarily that you're an agent becomes an asset. Yeah. In other words, the fact that you don't fit the stereotype is actually something that adds value to the work. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that way, uh, I actually was able to do a lot of cool things that I think kind of your, your average, you know, kind of six foot tall guy with a crew cut, like probably couldn't <laughs> do. Right. right. Um, right. So for me, uh, that part of it was not as challenging to navigate as, say, being like as being a woman, I yeah. think. Well, and, and I wonder if, you know, reflecting on that now, there's the the concept of, you know, the at least impression of what kind of stereotype or machismo that that fits. And yet the amount of you know, real rigor and study and analysis that goes into it is something that probably gets lost, right? I mean, people may perceive that to be such such a cool and, and you know, again, the Priyanka Chopra sort of version of it. Um, <laughs> but but the idea of it actually being an, an incredibly um, rigorous uh, intellectual and even, you know, physical amount of uh, challenge that's there. Did, did you experience some of that of saying like, no, my perception about this was different, or I have to unwind the perceptions of others about what I do in some ways? I mean, I didn't really talk about what I did um, <laughs> because it was, it was classified. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, counterintelligence work involves monitoring foreign intelligence activity. It is, I think, quite, um, it's, it's a chess game, really. Because yeah. what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out what a foreign adversary is doing and what they're up to. And you're trying to essentially outwit them. You're, you know, monitoring them. You're flipping that, you know, so it's it's a spy versus spy, which is, um, you know, I think actually not so macho in a lot of ways. I think, yeah. you know, the criminal side of the FBI tends to be more of that because that's the you know, catching the bad guys, um, arresting them, you know, all kicking down doors, all of that stuff. Um, but that's not really the side of the bureau that I was on. You mentioned that, you know, you don't really have uh, uh, too much of a, 
lens on this one with your parents, but what, what did your parents say about, um, you know, what did they think about your, your career trajectory and, and being in the FBI? And, and once it was all said and done, what, what was their, what were their impressions? Um, they were very confused. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the FBI came, I think, you know, it was one of many choices and things that I did that confused. Like I, I mentioned, I was a cheerleader in high school and they were like, why are you going to school wearing that? that right. Like why wearing that? Like, isn't yeah. that, in, isn't that scandalous and inappropriate? And I was like, yeah. no, that's what we have to wear um, right. on every Friday. Yeah. Uh, you know, after college, I did a Fulbright to Bogota, Colombia. This yeah. was in 1996, 97. So if you've watched the series Narcos, like roughly season three. Okay. No, <laughs> that's not, you. It's not the, the, the uh, uh, safest time to, to be in Colombia. Um, and in fact, my grandfather at the time tried to tell my parents that they should, you know, bar me from going because, you know, a young woman should not be alone in, in a country, yeah. you know, that's dangerous. And they're like, yeah, that's not ever going to happen. Yeah. So, um, you know, by the time I had decided to join the FBI, I think, uh, they were confused, but they had also been used to being confused. I remember um, one time, this was like right after I graduated, I think we went out for lunch um, and, you know, they give you at graduation, like all of your stuff, right? right. So, you know, you actually get issued your weapon, you get um, your bulletproof vest. So, you know, I had all this stuff and like, like I think it really hit them. Like, yeah. like you're going to carry a gun? Like, right. <laughs> And you have like they literally fitted you for a bulletproof vest. So, yeah. you know, it's like does not compute. Right. Or the confusion mom and dad. magically disappeared at that moment. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, what was what was really interesting was they were confused. I think maybe even a little embarrassed because, you know, nobody else's kids did this. But yeah. then they would get they started getting all this like positive feedback from people when they would tell them what I did, like, Oh my God, she's an FBI agent. That's so cool. Like wow. that's so yeah. great. And so, you know, it was this like validation from society that then suddenly they, they, be, they grew to be very proud of it because they yeah. suddenly realized like this was something that was valued right. or recognized as being semi-prestigious in, you know, American society. Yeah. Um, and cool. that kind of shaped their approach is like, I guess it would with a lot of immigrant parents. You, you tweeted something out um, recently about the whole uh, Indiana Jones and the depiction of the Temple of Doom. And and I was I, I was struck by that because it's basically my entire like middle school and high school experience of constantly defending, you know, chilled monkey brains type of thing. I mean, you know, yeah. you know, for you, those days seem so long ago. Um, I'm so curious what you think the importance or even the presence of the South Asian um, American is in 2021 now. Like just thinking about that, yeah. that backdrop and, and how that's now taken shape and evolved and, and what it means necessarily to be a South Asian American in, in yeah. 2021. Well, I mean, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, in particular where I grew up in Hampton, Virginia, I was the only Indian in my school. Yeah. Um, and we were kind of an invisible minority. I mean, you know, we belong to at least in that area. Um, and I think generally in the United States, I mean, I don't know what the population was at that point compared to now, but, you know, so people's idea, I mean, 
India was so far away. Like you never met anyone who had been to India. Yeah. Whereas now like people, you know, business people go to India all the time. Right. Yeah. And, but it was, you know, uh, very rarely did you meet people who had tried Indian food. Like they had no idea what, like they, there was just no conception of it in my, yeah. at least in my experience. And so, you know, these kinds of things like Indiana Jones became what they know about this. And so it was, you know, incredibly problematic. I mean, that's just not true now. Yeah. Right. We have members of Congress who are Indian. We have journalists. We, you know, Manu Rogers on CNN. Right. Um, you know, there's vice presidents, uh, um. lawyers. We have vice presidents. I mean, it's it's crazy. Yeah. And uh, and not only that, but, you know, the world has gotten smaller yeah. and people and, and the Internet and, you know, in other words, people just have more of a window. And I think more like I did law school admissions, I mean, it was not unusual for students to have traveled to Africa and India. Like it was just, you know, that's people are more exposed to the world in a way that, um, and I think, you know, more culturally sensitive now, like that's just become a, a bigger thing in a way that it just wasn't bef before, you know? Well, and, and because those impressions are also so fleeting, we talked about this earlier, that the cycles of, of trends and, and what, you know, trends on either social media or in front of someone that they change so fast. Is it also hard to sometimes unwind some of those, uh, you know, I guess, misinterpretations of the culture also? Like today, that that story about chilled monkey brains in Indiana Jones wouldn't exist. But if there was something similar, you know, it's hard to tell what catches fire and what doesn't in, in that way. And when you want to unwind something, I wonder if it's that much more difficult. It's just as difficult to do or not. Yeah, it probably is. Um, I think it would just depend on what it what the issue is. Sure. Um, let me ask you this. Because of the prominence, you know, there are journalists and lawyers and vice presidents and you know, uh, the, the world is so much smaller. Do, do, do you find that the sort of power of the South Asian community has has grown that much as well um, in in sort of wielding that ability to say, hey, we are represented and, and we matter? I think so, definitely. I mean, you know, I'm not a politico, but I mean, I think I think the South Asian community is actually a constituency that matters to yeah. elected officials now. Um, you know, partly because of the money that they are able to provide, but I think partly because there are, you know, issues that matter to to that community. And I think we saw that, you know, play out with um, Kamala Harris's nomination, you know, Nikki Haley and Bobby Jindal have also been on the scene. And, you know, I, so I think, you know, it's a it's a. Uh, it's not just the representation, but I think that's all the representation is a function of the fact that it's it is a constituency that uh, that matters. I will say in in some ways, I don't know how to explain it. Like the other I don't know if you saw my tweet about how Alabama had um, for for 30 years had banned yoga in schools. Yes. And now they're allowing it, but you're not allowed to say namaste. You know, I, and I think, you know, there is an aspect of the South Asian community is like, eh. All right. So they'll miss out on, you know, the, right. in, there's not as much, I think um, it's it's it doesn't get as vocal about stuff, right. uh, I think, in 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 some ways. It's almost as if like, OK, great. You know, one avenue is closed over there. We've got plenty of others that are out there. Yeah. Let me ask you this, um, you know, for you as a 
as a lecturer, as an academic, as an analyst, a thought leader, how, and of course it's the title of this show, but uh, how do you cultivate trust? How, how do you continue to um, engender trust in uh, yourself and what you do and for others who are, are listening to you? And my goal is just to always be authentic. Um, I don't try to perform. I mean, this kind of goes back to sort of just innately who I am. Like I don't yeah. perform to other people's expectations. One person told me in law school, she said, you know what I like about you? You're just all Asha all the time. <laughs> you know, like you're not like different in class versus when we're at a party versus when you're around somebody's parents versus when you're, you know, it's just, yeah. and for me that like, that's just how I am. But over time, I've seen how people become chameleon like and, you know, can actually adjust themselves to adapt, you know, to be different. Yeah, shape shifting or code switching. Shape shifting, code switching, you know, and sometimes it's a matter of survival. You have to do that for some people. Um, but you know, sometimes it's because they're they're seeing interactions as instrumental and people as instrumental. And so they need to kind of be a certain way to achieve a particular end. And I think that that undermines trust. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, what uh, what I just try to do is, you know, what people see is what they get. Yeah. This is what my parents get. Right. <laughs> Now, this is what they get on podcasts. Yep. <laughs> this is what they get on CNN. This is what right. they get on Twitter. That's um, what they get in cheerleading. That's what they get in Columbia. That's what they get exactly. in the Exactly. Um, you know, uh, and I thought I try to be thoughtful and reflective of, you know, when and acknowledge when something has changed my mind or, or you know, and not, uh, you know, not pretend that not not to the need to be right all the time you know that's something yeah. that's that's something that's come with adulthood obviously like I, sure. I definitely had a problem with that before but i think that that also uh creates trust yeah well and it, it, it makes it so easy to pivot and um for you i i imagine that the answer to this question must be easy too that when, when you leave a room after um you've left what do you what do you hope that people say about you i I don't really think about it. I don't really care. I mean, I think yeah. this is like another thing that is maybe unusual, but I just, you know, I think I'm very inner directed, right? Yeah. Like I want to be true to my own principles and my own values. Um, it's not my problem. Yeah. Like how other people think about me obviously if i've done something to to hurt or harm someone then i care and i would like to know and i would like if it's if it was unintentional i mean i want to take accountability but in just terms of like what do people think of me i think it's a it's a very difficult way to live your life um because uh you know it it ends up manifesting with a lot you know a lot of insecurity yeah um you can't please everyone Right. And uh, I think it can lead you astray from what really matters to you. Asha, thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining us and we wish you well. Thank you so much. Staying true to ourselves and delivering audio truth. That's just what we do. You've been listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. 
Just a reminder that you can follow me at my good friend on Instagram and Twitter and search and subscribe to our podcast at every outlet. With a nod to Asha and all who play a role in maintaining our national security, currently, formally, and mythically, to even include the great Alex Parrish, a big thank you. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandika. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about South Asian people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hear it every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio or wherever you get your podcast. This is Sunju. Check out my show Cam Life every Friday, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, only on Ruckus Avenue Radio.